You're listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only English-language labor news and current affairs radio program. News for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Lucero, and this is the Sunday, April 18th, 2021 edition of Labor Express. Tonight's program will be all about the very unfortunate loss in the union election at the Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. No doubt our listeners will already be aware of the news. The pro-union workers lost by a fairly wide margin, 1,798 votes against to 738 votes for. It dashed hopes for a chink in the seemingly unassailable armor of the megacorporation, which is reshaping the landscape of capitalism and the workplace in the 21st century. However, this story is likely far from over. Leaders of the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union, or RWDSU, the union that's organized the workers, the pro-union workers themselves, leaders and members of other unions internationally, and the thousands of Amazon workers and activists who've tried to organize in other locales, all declare this is more likely an opening salvo in a war that's just beginning. RWDSU argues that even this chapter in the story is yet to be finished as they plan to challenge the results of the election and request that the National Labor Relations Board, NLRB, set aside the election for a host of irregularities. Their chances appear to be good of winning their argument as the company appears to have likely violated NLRB rules on where and how ballots were collected during the election, as well as claims of labor law violations prior to the election like threatening pro-union workers and issuing a combination of threats, promises, and misinformation about what would happen if the workers voted for or rejected the union. Penalties for labor law violations under current U.S. law are so weak that anti-union law firms often suggest to companies breaking the law as there's little consequence to doing so. But in this case, it could lead to the results of the election being tossed out. Problem is, even a new, hopefully more fair election is unlikely to alter the outcome enough for the union to win, at least under the conditions created for any union election under current U.S. labor law. And many are saying that the attempted election in Alabama may have done a service for the labor movement, win or lose, as it has revealed to the public the truly anti-worker bias of U.S. labor law. Even mainstream media sources, which usually ignore labor struggles, have taken note of the union election at Amazon. So what are the lessons of this turn of events and what does it mean for the labor movement more broadly? This is the topic that we will address tonight. There were critiques of the campaign of the RWDSU in Bessemer even before the election, mainly around the nature of organizing against such a behemoth by focusing on one warehouse at a time, and the nature of the work and composition of the organizing committee. But we'll not get into those criticisms much on tonight's program. Instead, what we'll hear over and over again is the obvious need for labor law reform and calls for passage of the PRO Act, which we've been discussing on the last couple episodes of Labor Express. Our coverage tonight will once again get a huge heaping dose of help from our partners in the Labor Radio Podcast Network. One of the first segments of the program will be the voices of the RWDSU and the workers at Amazon and Bessemer themselves on their thoughts after this election loss. Then we'll move on to analysis, first from network partner The Rick Smith Show. Rick interviews Sean Richmond, Program Director of the Harry Van Arsdale Jr. School of Labor Studies at SUNY Empire State College, on the situation. In the second half of the program, we'll turn to our old friends at Building Bridges in New York City. Ken Nash and Mimi Rosenberg interview labor lawyer Brendan Magner on the election loss. 
But first, we'll hear how the PRO Act is the answer to this election loss from our friends at Radio Labor in Canada. In this episode of Solidarity News, Richard Benzinger, the former National Organizing Director of the AFL-CIO, talks about U.S. labor law. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor report recorded on Thursday, April 15th, 2021. I'm Mark Belanger. In early April 2021, workers at an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama in the United States voted against joining a union. The Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union, the RWDSU, had high hopes that the workers would be able to withstand the powerful anti-union tactics of the company, but that was not to be. To find out more about anti-union strategies in the United States, I talked to Richard Bensinger. Mr. Bensinger is a former national organizing director of the AFL-CIO in the U.S. He currently helps unions with their organizing drives. I asked him to describe the sort of tactics companies use to stop their employees from unionizing. The goal of a corporation like Amazon is to prevent at any cost, any cost, their workers from having a voice in the job, having a union and any power. In order to achieve that, they have a whole arsenal of weapons at Amazon and other employers. Employers typically threaten workers to try to get them to go their way, or if that doesn't work, they can promote people out of the bargaining unit. I remember a zillion years ago when I worked in my factory, I was offered a management job suddenly to get me out of the unit. And when that didn't work, they said, well, I'll be looking over. Is it Mr. Bensinger, you'll be looking over your shoulder every day the rest of your life. And when I finally was fired, it took me six years to win my job back long after the union election was over. So, you know, the same thing as this today. Um, you smear the union. You take people in one-on-one. But the main thing that Amazon did and employers do is they totally 100% under current laws, dominate the process. And the breadth and the sort of 24-nature pressure campaign of putting stress and fright and intimidating people 24-7, that has a toll on people. And when the richest guy on earth, the overlord of society, Jeff Bezos, tells you he really doesn't want you to vote somewhere, that's just not somebody else's opinion. He makes it very clear through his fanaticism. Every second you're working in there leading up to the election, it's a domination of a process. It doesn't look like an election you would run in Canada, United States for a, you know, if you're running for the, you know, a political office, the electoral office. There's, there's no equal time in these elections, and employer can simply dominate. They can run mandatory meetings, and they can fire union leaders. And even if you win your job back, like I was saying earlier, it could be months, years later that you get your job back. So it's a total control of the workplace. That's Certainly unprincipled, but that's what they do. There is legislation being considered in the U.S. Congress called the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, known as the PRO Act. Tell us about this proposed legislation. Well, the PRO Act is a sweeping labor law reform agenda that would, you know, give more power to workers that want to organize unions. What it is, it has a lot of provisions, but some of the most important ones are it would eliminate so-called right-to-work or right-to-work for less laws where where the union has to represent everybody, but not everyone has to be a member. It's just a design to weaken unions. 
it would impose much stricter penalties when employers do break the law and the right of private action by individuals to sue companies, much more stiff fines for firings and breaking U.S. labor law. It would abolish the right of a company like Amazon to have mandatory, what we call captive audience meetings, where they can force people to come in and listen. And even more effective are all the one-on-one meetings that Amazon does where they just bend people's arm. They can be friendly. They can be threatening. You know, and all this is legal. The current, you know, their implicit threats are allowed under laws in both Canada and the United States. And so, but under the PRO Act, you wouldn't be allowed to have these meetings. And it would really create a more level playing field because there's no other election in society where one SAC can order people to come in. If you don't come to the meeting, they can fire you because you're refusing to come to the meeting. And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can find our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. big thank you to Mark Belanger and Solidarity News produced by Radio Labor in Canada for allowing us to broadcast their segments regularly here on Labor Express. For more on Radio Labor, see their website at radiolabor.net. You're listening to Labor Express Radio Schools, only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. Following the announcement of the outcome of the union election at Amazon in Bessemer, Alabama a little over a week ago, the RWDSU held a press call in which the union's president, Stuart Applebaum, and several of the Amazon workers expressed their feelings on the outcome of the election and the next steps in their organizing efforts. First to speak was Applebaum. Today's announcement by the NLRB may not be what we wanted, but sadly, It is one that many have come to expect. Our system is broken, and Amazon took full advantage of that. But make no mistake about it, this still represents an important moment for working people. And most importantly, people should not presume that the results of this vote are in any way a validation of Amazon's working conditions and the way it treats its employees. Quite the contrary. The results demonstrate the powerful impact of employer intimidation and interference. We will be calling on the Labor Board to hold Amazon accountable for its egregious behavior during the campaign. Amazon misled and manipulated workers. They lied and tried to game the system. Not only did they take full advantage of our terrible labor laws, we contend that they broke the law repeatedly in their no-holds-barred effort to stop workers from forming a union. We will be filing multiple charges with the Labor Board, and we are confident that the charges will be upheld. Despite overwhelming odds, workers here at Bessemer have stood up to one of the most powerful companies in the world, 
to the planet's richest man. And they were heard. This is part of a much bigger story. The announcement today does not signal the end to our efforts to change the way Amazon treats its workers. What has happened here has inspired workers throughout the United States and around the world. No union election in decades has received this much attention. That's because this was never an ordinary union election. It transcends this one workplace and even this one company. The campaign garnered worldwide attention because it shows with painful clarity the profound imbalance of power, fueled by corporate greed and racism between workers and large corporations. And it also brought into high relief the total failure of our laws to protect workers when they tried to form a union. Despite this outcome, many of the workers here have shown real courage. They have stood up and spoken out. And they have shown just how much needs to be changed. The struggle in Bessemer was and is as much a civil rights struggle as a labor struggle. The Black Lives Matter movement and other civil rights activists joined with supporters throughout the labor movement and came together here. It is a powerful coalition that harkens back to the energy and hope of the civil rights era. And what's more, the workers here revealed just how powerful corporations will stop at nothing and will readily spend millions of dollars to deny workers a voice. Amazon's ruthless anti-union campaign, mandatory hour-long anti-union lectures, inescapable anti-union propaganda, the barrage of lies and misinformation, the manipulation. It's not something any of us can ever unsee. But in a real sense, despite Amazon's relentless bullying and dirty tricks, workers have shown what can be possible and what needs to be fixed. With their historic campaign, Amazon workers have done something incredible. And we will continue to move forward to build on what's been accomplished here. A drop box is on the company's property. Workers are used to having every motion they make surveilled throughout the day. Cameras are outside. And I think it also gives people the impression that Amazon, not the government, is conducting the election. And I think it also created, unfortunately, 
the opportunity for Amazon to illegally harvest votes. And we have evidence of that, um, that we will be presenting, that Amazon harvested votes in direct violation of the law. So the board said, no Dropbox, no Dropbox. And Amazon decided to ignore that. My name is Emmett and I'm an Amazon worker. And I just wanted to speak to everybody today about what has happened. Of course, we're gonna be feeling a lot of different things right now. Of course, we're gonna be disappointed, frustrated, angry about the way this election has turned out because of the uh, being misled and manipulated and lied to. But not only are we feeling that, I'm feeling hope and joy today. Like Big Mike said, and people who've talked before me today, that this is just a spark that has started a fire across the United States. But like Mike said, the labor union is alive and we will keep fighting. Uh, we still have to go to work tomorrow. We still have to work next week. And this experience has bonded us. And if this, this election, um, if we had to lose this election here in Bessemer for people across the United States to succeed, that is the point. Our time will come around again and next time we will win. But at the same time, we have done so much. We have inspired so many people. We have gained so, many, so much support in Congress and across the United States for things to change. Things will not stay the same after this point. And we will keep going and we will keep fighting and we will build a bigger community and more support for labor and workers in, um, in factories, in um, facilities, everywhere. We will become greater and get more power because we do deserve, we deserve better pay. We deserve better working conditions. We deserve so many things that have been denied to us and told we should be happy that we have what we have. Um, we don't ask if it is right. We just say, this is what you deserve. And it's not right and we deserve more. So we will keep our heads held up. We will keep fighting, we'll keep moving. And it's not over, it is just the beginning. And people will continue to fight and continue to talk. And it's only a matter of time before things change and change for the better. So don't let this discourage you. It is just the natural course of things and the floodgates have been open and we cannot stop it. This news has not discouraged us and we are holding our head high. I just want y'all to know I'm not discouraged like Mike and um, Emmett. After what Emmett said, I am not discouraged. I'm happy. I'm proud because like I said, this is the beginning. It's not over. I'm gonna stay in it till the end. Even if I leave Amazon today or tomorrow, I'm still gonna be there helping them do whatever I can. Bezos, you're wrong. You are wrong all the way around. You misled a lot of our people. You told us they was gonna take all our money. Where are you taking all our money? We're gonna fight. I'm not going nowhere. I want all of my fellow Amazonians to know that. It's not over. Put a smile, that frown on that box is going to still turn into a smile. It's not over. I just want everybody to know. 
You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Working People by Working People. Labor Radio Podcast Network partner program, The Rick Smith Show, also describes itself as a program that is by working people and for working people. How about that? The show further describes itself saying, Working Americans are tired of listening to think tank approved corporate news and commentary. They want a direct, honest approach to the issues that matter. So this is what The Rick Smith Show provides. No puppets, no focus groups, no talking points. On the April 13th episode of the program, Rick interviewed Sean Richmond, program director of the Harry Van Arsdale Jr. School of Labor Studies at SUNY Empire State College, who has an extensive experience with union organizing drives. Here was Richmond's take on the outcome of the election at Amazon in Alabama. So today I'm looking at The Hill, and the hill, um, TheHill.com has got a story about the Amazon election that went Honestly, it went exactly the way I, I had predicted it was going to go. I did have some guarded optimism, as I said all along, since Joe Biden did jump into it. And there was so much attention on how horrible Amazon was uh, was 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 doing things. Uh, we were highlighting what, what's been the reality for decades. So I had some, not a lot, but some hope that it'd be closer. Uh, but now you've got the Hill coming out saying, well, you know, the labor advocates are floating new strategies. Um, and I thought, well, the new strategy should be changing our laws because we, we definitely need to do something on the legal front. Uh, and also doing much more as, as, as organizers to make sure that th- there's a union culture. Uh, and I thought it'd be a good opportunity to talk about what happened in Alabama and maybe how things go forward. Uh, and one of the, the guys who I think is one of the top organizers uh, in the country and uh, a good friend of the show. I've asked Sean Rickman to come talk with us. He's the program director of the Harry Van Ardsdale Junior School of Labor Studies at SUNY Empire State College. He's also uh, written the book, Tell the Bosses We're Coming, a new action plan for workers in the 21st century. Sean, thanks for taking time for us. Thanks for inviting me. I'm, I'm not active duty, though, although I'm like really eager to get back into it with everything that I've seen at Amazon. I'm just fascinated. I want to get you know i want to get in a car and talk to some workers like old school you know once all the vaccines are in everybody's arms and you know in the future and all as well yeah i mean you're one of those guys i look to for for advice and and when when you're talking about organizing because you've you've done this stuff you you know it um so in looking at what happened in alabama you know given the realities of covid and given the realities that you're dealing with the a global behemoth um, give me your, give me your, your assessment of, of what went wrong. I mean, I, 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 I'm with you in that, like, I, I was also sort of cautiously optimistic. I mean, the, the, the union was definitely sort of taking a risk. I think they were taking a risk that their organizing committee understood. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, and, and what they did is they created sort of exhibit a of how broken our labor laws are. Um, and, 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 in, in, in doing that, they did everybody, every worker around the country, a lot of, uh, a, a big favor. Um, in a lot of respects, this is, this is, you know, uh, back to the future again, you know, uh, little steel in the late 1930s, um, who just absolutely resisted what was on the books as laws in terms of workers' rights and got, um, very powerful senators and Congress members, um, holding hearings to investigate just how how badly these major corporations thumbed their their noses at the law. Um, 
I um, I'm sort of taken, and again, I'm I'm five years out of active duty as a union organizer. Um, there's two major questions that this campaign raises for me that I I hope that more people that that are thoughtful about engaging with you know um, what do we do, what is to be done, um, engage with. Um, and in the, what we call the, 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 the organizing model, which is in my mind, it's based off of a lot of research that uh, Dr. Kate Bronfenbrenner did in the 1980s and the 1990s of sort of scientifically measuring um, un effective union organizing tactics and also sort of countermeasuring um, boss tactics, captive audience meetings, you know, um, uh, uh, I mean, pasting a you don't have to vote for the union thing on the door of the toilet stall that you're taking a dump in. Yeah, people walking around <laughs> with sandwich boards saying how bad the union is, you know, paying or, you know, union busters 10 grand a, a day to come in because Amazon spent $200 million fighting back this one campaign. I don't think they'd have spent that in several contracts. No, no, they wouldn't have. And, and the campaign messaging was garbage. But that's, that's also actually like a part of the point, right? Like the workers get the message of like, they turn this place upside down. Six months ago, they were telling us that it's about, you know, pack 57 boxes in 53 seconds. And now I'm in this captive audience meeting. We're wasting the entire day on like these nonsense messages of like, oh, you're so concerned about how I'm going to spend a dollar a day in my wages on union dues, right? And like the, the, the message is that's how crazy we are. Yep. We will burn this place down if you defy us. And that is actually very, very effective. So, you know, uh, going back to the organizing model, you know, one of the sort of, you know, two of the, two of the sort of unspoken um, principles of it are um, that you basically have to organize in secret. Um, that you, you know, you need, you need a strong organizing committee. You need to have, a, you need to have 70% of people on cards or a petition because the boss is going to be, they're, they're going to, they're going to remind you why you're taking a dump that you, we know that you're taking a dump uh, on our dime. And, and they, we, and we they did because they had the little wristbands telling them where you were and they had the signs in the stalls telling you that in the stalls, yes. in the stalls, like you can't take a dump in peace. Like your boss is telling you, no, no, you, we know where you are. We now know what you're reading. <laughs> we know what you're doing. We know you're doing it while you're on the clock. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty intimidating. <laughs> um, and so one of the unspoken rules of the organizing model, and this was designed in the 1980s, is basically like nobody cares. The general public, politicians, they're not going to care. They're not going to have any sympathy for a union. They don't care that the boss is breaking the law. And so that's why you have to like lock it down, keep it secret. Don't go public without more than 70% of the vote. You're going to lose that vote do the effective tactics and, and hopefully you can eke out a victory. Right. And the other unspoken rule is that a high profile loss for one group of workers could have a chilling effect on a whole bunch of other workers. I, I, I question how, I mean, this is our perfect opportunity to, I, I feel like things are changing. Um, I, I, on the first hand, 
the idea that like the general public doesn't care about union busting and that the politicians don't care, I think that's actually effectively out the window. And so one of the things that the workers at, 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 at Amazon, that the RWDSU did is they just let Amazon be Amazon in front of a world stage. And everybody's kind of horrified by it. I mean, it's actually, it's pretty ugly. It's, it's ugly, it's disgusting, it's cheap, it's, it's, it's stupid. And it's, it's just, it's, it's exhibit A for why we need the PRO Act. Um, and on the second point, does this have a chilling effect on organizing? I don't know. This is why I want to get in a car and talk to as many workers as possible. Um, I, I genuinely don't know. I, I, I feel like there's a chance that that has also changed. Um, but that's, that's kind of where we're at. Um, you know, I mean, if we do get the PRO Act, we can't have this sort of slavish devotion to, um, you know, uh, 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 an organizing model that was tested during the Reagan-Bush era. Um, we do need to be a lot more experimental. And we do, if we're actually going to, if we're actually going to tell the bosses, to, if we're going to win anything, we, we, we need a higher degree of worker self-organizing. And that's what this campaign was to a large degree. This was a hot shop. Um, you know, the workers turned to RWDSU under really difficult circumstances. You know, I mean, uh, working in an Amazon uh, fulfillment center is bad on any given day. Working during the pandemic is awful. Um, and the feeling was, well, let's just do it. Let's run it as quickly as possible. And, you know, and, and let's, you know, let's let Amazon be Amazon and let that try to convince more um, uh, Congress members and senators that we need to change the law. And let's let's let the workers learn from this and, and figure out how to run a stronger, uh, uh, harder, hopefully more national campaign the next time around. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. We need to take a short station ID break, but when we return, we'll hear the rest of Rick Smith's interview with labor historian and former union organizer Sean Richmond about the outcome of the union election at Amazon in Alabama. So make sure to keep yourself tuned in. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for working people by working people. Before the break, we were listening to Rick Smith of The Rick Smith Show interview Sean Richmond, Program Director of the Harry Van Arsdale Junior School of Labor Studies at SUNY Empire State College, and his views of the outcome of the union election at Amazon in Alabama. Let's get right back to the rest of that interview. And that's where my mindset is. I When they when they first you know filed the petition, uh, there was the story that they barely had 30%, let alone 70. I don't know if that's 100% accurate, but from what I read, they barely had 30%. In fact, Amazon was challenging whether they had that at one point. And as someone who's done this stuff in the past, nowhere near the level that you have, um, I went by the, the 75% rule. You got to have at least 75% because you're going to get the bleed off from people who you know are, are intimidated and harassed through the captive audience meetings and the veiled threats of, well, you know, we might have to close down and, and move. And, and as crappy as this job is, you'd, you'd still lose this crappy job and you can't have that. So it gets people, you know, based on fear and fear always works. Uh, so for me, you know, I didn't know that Alabama was the right place to, to choose this fight. Uh, so I guess the question that I have is by getting the results, I think we both agree we're going to happen. 
does this does this put a chilling effect on uh, the Teamsters who are, or, are trying to organize uh, the drivers, uh, from what I'm told, from other unions who are trying to go after uh, Amazon facilities in, in states that aren't right-to-work states? I can't speak to that. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get Kim Kelly, who was on the ground um, uh, doing a lot of interviews with uh, with with the workers to like, you know, let like do, do a conversation like this and, and maybe get it, you know, get it, you know, get it transcripted and published in, in, in these times. I genuinely can't speak to that. And I want to be really clear about that. And again, I'm, I'm you know, I'm five years out of, of, of active duties, and, which makes me you know, less willing to sort of um, backseat, you know, backseat driver, you know, Monday morning quarterback um, union organizing decisions. Um, I, I, I would say that, first of all, again, one of the things that this campaign reveals to the rest of the world is just like a boss can have like almost virtually 24 hour access to their workers to do this campaign of intimidation. And the union like has to be like 200 feet away from the curb, right? And that's what the bosses are counting on. Even even before this, there were a lot of unions that had a strategy of like, yeah, go forward with a 30% petition. Because the the only you the only time that you get access, the only the, the contact information for the worker, that you get their names and home addresses. It's after you file a petition and you get a union election schedule. Right. And so a lot of unions had a, had a strategy of just like file the petition and then the boss is going to commit a ULP, file the ULP, get the election blocked. But now you at least you have their addresses and you can build from that. Um, again, that speaks to like the creativity that I think that we need to have going forward. You know, I, I, I if and and I, how does that work I, in an I environment? To, I, used to run, I used to run the AFT's charter school organizing division. And we, right. I, I studied under Dr. Bronfenbrenner at UMass. I, I, and I, she's a genius. Her work is unassailable. We followed the rules of her research. Um, we, I, I took a lot of the stuff that I learned at the hotel and restaurant employees union and brought it back over to the AFT. We're like you would you would follow the rules of you need to have a strong organizing committee, you you need to be able to withstand the boss's organizing campaign, and we would spend four million dollars a year organizing one thousand workers, because if you're if you're following those rules, you 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 wind up walking away from more campaigns than you wind up pulling the trigger on, because that's how stacked the law is in, in the boss's favor. And that's where I wanted to get to, because, you know, as you've, you've said, you, you have to file this uh, the, you know, for an election to get the names and addresses of people. Uh, and in a place that has 100 percent turnover over the year, uh, it's, it's a constant fight to get the people who are going to be there. And yet, you know, the employer, they know who they're hiring and they know who they're firing. Uh, they have all the control. So the, the game is, is, is rigged even before you even started which is why I've been saying that for decades we've needed comprehensive labor law reform. Uh, and, and it brings us to the PRO Act. Is there any chance of this remaining in the infrastructure bill so that the lessons we've learned from this Amazon campaign is something that you can move forward on? I think there's genuinely a chance. I mean, it's still a fight. You know, you know Bernie's going to fight for it. Right, because <laughs> the, what this is, he's, is this he's is in a pretty loss. good position to do so. Right. So this is a, lo this is a major loss. Uh, and all of the conditions of people, you know, 
defecating in bags and urinating in bottles because they can't take a break. You know, those stories are out there. And most people are, I can't believe that happens still, but it does. No, I mean, that, that, that's the thing. And I, I would say this, this other uh, about the, 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 the devotion to the organizing model. In as much as the organizing model is predicated in this notion of nobody cares, nobody's, nobody's going to have any sympathy for us, the labor movement has been suffering in silence for decades. And it really is about time that we really start highlighting just how outrageous yeah. what bosses can get away with. No, and I, I had thought in this moment, in this moment, coming out of this pandemic, out of all the things that we've had to endure over the last year, that now is this organizing opportunity that people are going to say, hey, I've had enough. I've We've eaten enough. You know what? It's time for us to take a stand. And I was, you know, there was, like I said, guardedly optimistic that the workers at, at Amazon were going to say, you know what? We're treated like garbage here. We're constantly surveilled. Uh, they didn't do enough to, to protect us during COVID. We need a voice. Sadly, that didn't happen. I mean, I, 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 I don't, I don't really view that election as a genuine expression of worker voice, and and you know the election is going to get overturned, it's going to get rerun, because Amazon broke the law in every way possible. You know, I mean, I, they 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 committed, the, they created a company union, right, right. The, the the whole story of the National Labor Relations Act getting passed is that. There was a paper right to organize a union that was in the, the, the National Industrial Recovery Act. And, you know, uh, Little Steel was shooting their workers in the street. And, and so a couple of like crusading senators were doing hearings on this. And, and one of them, Wagner, wound up drafting a new law to put some teeth into unfair labor practices. Um, and I think that's, that's actually what this has done. They're not shooting us yet. Thankfully, Not yet. it doesn't last much longer. Um, but but um, they're they're just egregiously violating the law, and 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 calling out to the ways that this needs to um, you know that there needs to be real teeth to hear. And here's the thing, actually, there is a school of thought among labor lawyers, both pro management and frankly pro labor, that given that there's no financial penalties for just breaking the law, just you know. Firing somebody, you, you could fire somebody, and all you got to do is rehire them and pay them whatever unemployment didn't pay them in, right. in the years that it took for them to a get a little slap on the wrist, posted posted notice. You can threaten, you can lie, you can hire, you can hire people to impersonate NLRB agents yeah. to lie to the workers about what their rights are, and this happens in ten percent of all union elections. And there's no, you don't get a fine. There's no fine at all. Meanwhile, if there is a union contract, you're, you know, the boss is going to pay some more, you know, they're going to pay some more. So there's a school of thought among labor lawyers at this point that it's like you're, you're, you're possibly committing malpractice if you don't advise your boss to break client, the law. To break the law. Yeah. Uh, which is, again, is totally why we need system. It's yeah, a totally broken system. It's totally broken why we need comprehensive labor law reform. But, Sean, I appreciate the time. Uh, I, I'm sure you'll be back to explain more of this. Uh, thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Good sh good stuff. Uh, Sean Rickman, program director there at the uh, Harry Van Ardsdale Junior School of Labor Studies at SUNY Empire State College. Love to hear your thoughts. You can email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. You can get the Rick Smith podcast on your favorite podcast platform. The show is also available on YouTube and Free Speech TV. 
Check out the links at the Labor Express Radio Facebook page at laborexpress.org. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. In our final segment tonight, old friends of Labor Express, Mimi Rosenberg and Ken Nash, on their April 12th episode of Building Bridges, Your Community and Labor Report, interviewed Brandon Magner, labor lawyer who writes about unions and the law at Substack Labor Law Light, to offer his analysis of the outcome of the election at Amazon in Bessemer, Alabama. Here's what Magner had to say. Something that distinguishes the U.S. from pretty much every other industrialized country in the world is that our labor law makes it very hard to unionize. No other country in the world has a labor code in which the employer basically has an equal say with the union in terms of the formation and the composition of the bargaining unit. We saw that with Amazon, how that was a really big deal early on in terms of what the size of the unit was, who got to be in the unit, and what kind of say the employer got at the pre-election proceedings. More importantly, the employer in the U.S. gets an incredibly broad power to campaign against the union under free speech justifications in our law. These things have been mastered by employers over the last 40 years. What we've seen is a basically a foolproof playbook plan that they play in every election. They do it because it's extremely successful. Unions have not been able to come up with a response to this under our present laws that can defeat it. There's also other things at play, whether it's automation, just general economic forces, convincing people to try and be atomistic, to be individualistic, to not unite. But I think all these forces interplay with each other. I can confidently say that we have an incredibly anti-worker labor law suffocating workers now for 85 years. In terms of the labor law itself, and the Amazon campaign, and we're also trying to put it in the context of the PRO Act, which is in Congress right now, to reform the labor law. Why don't we start with some of these things that you mentioned and detail what Amazon is doing and how it's working now and how it would be reformed by the PRO Act. The first I would mention would be the composition of the bargaining unit. Who is going to be in the union if the union wins? One thing that's been in the law since it was first passed in 1935 is that Employers have what's called standing to participate in pre-election proceedings. That standing is what gives them a right to be there, to make their objections to whatever the union files, to say, we believe the unit should look like this because these workers should be bargaining or these union, these workers shouldn't be bargaining. That's, in, that's incredibly unique to just the United States Labor Code or really any other organization that is ever formed by the people who want to form it. You think about everything from a a trade group to a glee club, whatever, it's uh, usually the members are the ones who get to decide what it looks like. And under the PRO Act, that's basically how it would be. In the Amazon situation, they were able to take the union's original petition of around 1,500 workers to say, no, it should be every worker who works in the plant. And so they were basically able, and the NLRB agreed, and they were able to inflate the size. And I should be clear that the NLRB was constricted by uh, Trump board rulings in recent years that have hamstrung them from being able to challenge employers when employers want a, what's called a wall-to-wall unit. But they were able to inflate the unit basically almost quadruple in size. And that, of course, makes it much harder and requires more resources to organize. So the union, under the PRO Act, it would remove... Before we get to PRO Act, which we haven't even described, and I'm sure a lot of people don't know what it is, I just want to go back for a moment. The answer to the first question, and what Ken was asking you, dovetailed into the issue of labor law. I wonder if you can talk about and parse out a little bit more about the current labor laws, which 
are supposed to protect the right of workers in the private sector to organize. Clearly, that hasn't happened. Why not? The law was originally passed with the assumption that there would eventually be two good faith parties to every election who are willing to accept the results or who are willing to fairly give their opinion and their message about what unionization should be and that the workers would then decide based upon uh, it, this this political analog- analogy that's present throughout our labor law of, of industrial democracy of this is the equivalent of a political election within the workplace. The problem is that this analogy is com- just completely falls apart when you compare it to any actual political election. Well, how the election works under, under the NLRA in America would be the equivalent of if Donald Trump was allowed to take every voter in the in the country, stick them in a room, only talk to them, while Joe Biden had to wait outside the door, hoping that they saw his message on a pamphlet or something. Meanwhile, Trump got to say every, anything he wanted about the union or about Biden. And the election took place over the course of six months. <laughs> the problem with the NLRA is that employers have found that it is very... And that's the nation, National Labor Relations Act. Yeah. Yes, the National Labor Relations Act is... The employers have found that under the National Labor Relations Act, there's very few actual disincentives to stop them from breaking the law. The law being things like you can't promise certain things about the union. You can't say that the union will lose jobs or that they'll close the workplace, things like that. Because there is no provision in the the NLRA for monetary remedies or fines, like tons of other federal laws that will fine you for breaking them. The NLRA has no fine. It only has what's called a, a notice posting remedy, which says if you break the law, then they'll put up a a little small little foot by foot poster that says we broke the law and we're sorry. That doesn't go a long way in teaching workers that you won't threaten their livelihood for supporting the union. Usually the worst case scenario in an election for an employer is that the election results may be set aside for your violations. But this is a far cry from something that would actually have some force, like a bargaining order, which, which would force the employer to actually bargain with the union and certify the union. Basically, all, all that a rerun election does in most contexts is it allows the employer another shot at beating out what's already a broken down union that's probably had some turnover uh, in the bargaining unit. And it gets to say, all right, I get another crack at this. And you guys, we can do this for years because we're going to appeal this and we're going to appeal this to, to the federal courts. There's nothing that's going to stop us. And there's no monetary remedy that's going to really sway us for or change our calculus about how we're going to conduct business here. So the NLRA is basically it's a failed system of trying to bring two parties together to at least play fair when one side has all the power originally and there's nothing in the law that really stops the employer from exercising that power or even going beyond it legal means. Now, just to flesh out the employer's free speech rights on the job with regard to the elections, Tell us more about one-on-one meetings, captive audience meetings, the amount of signs they can post, the website, things of that nature that they can use to intimidate the workers. Under the NLRA, employers have what's called a free speech right, which is so long as they don't threaten, coerce, or intimidate, or interfere with the election, they have the right to say what they want, which is interpreted to mean they can say, I don't like the union and the union won't be good for you. But you can't go so far as to say, I can guarantee you that the union won't be good for you because I'm going to close the plant, things like that. So there's usually a pretty clear line, and that line is usually overstepped. 
for the reasons I've described about the lack of penalties that are in the law. But part of what the free speech right is interpreted to, to give the employers is the right to a captive audience meeting. An employer will gather all of the workers or a subset of workers into a room, usually for an hour or more. They get to present their side, which is, we don't like unions, we think unions are bad, and here's why. And the more important than the specific words that the employer is saying is usually the context of what the employee is receiving is that I am locked here in a room. There's nothing I can do about it. I can't leave. This is a, this is a mandatory meeting. And the employer is able to exercise its will over me to keep me here and listen to this message. You learn that it's either swayed a lot of people who are on the fence or it's convinced people who may have thought about joining the union that um, now it's a huge, it's almost like a rebellion against the employer to be for the union. That's something that really effectively intimidates people in the bargaining unit. For 70 years now, the law has said that that's okay, but the PRO Act would make that an unfair law. Tell us more about why the law is so restrictive and constricting as workers try to unionize. I mean, help us understand a little bit more about why these, what are called captive meetings, are so intimidating. They're, they're intimidating, I think, because of more so, like I said, than any specific message that they're giving. It's, it's the context of the employer has all the power. It's the one that controls your wages, your work schedule, your benefits. They can change that at will. If you don't have a union, if you don't have a collective bargaining agreement with a just cause provision, you are an at-will worker. And you have some protections under the law, and you're asking about, you know, what's a standard. A clear standard is you can't fire somebody for organizing a union if you're, if you're firing them because of an anti-union animus. That's been understood in the law for 80 years at this point. But employers will often break it because the, the reward, which is often intimidating, a, or crushing a organizing drive is a lot greater than the uh, the punishment, which is the obligation to pay back pay to that worker for firing them. But the NLRA does not have any provisions for punitive remedies. You can't double the amount just because as a, a punishment to the, to the employer it is purely a remedial framework in which you only are obligated to pay for what you did in the past. So, most lawyers and most organizers and, and, and these parties to the election understand where the lines are. The problem is the employer will often uh, overstep it because there's really very little punishment for them for overstepping that boundary. To them, it is simply more advantageous to break the law by saying, I'm going to close the plant because that may convince more workers to not support the union than it would convince them, oh, he's willing to break the law. I don't want to be seen supporting uh, somebody like that. We're speaking with Brandon Magno, labor lawyer, about the PRO Act. What are some of the specific things, if you could just elaborate on that more, uh, that Amazon did that was so frightening to workers that have resulted in what I dare say will be filings of unfair labor practices, but uh, most immediately uh, have caused uh, the union uh, vote, a pro vote, not to prevail. What did they do? Thing number one, it always starts with the captive audience meetings, just in the sense of those are legal, but I think they explain a lot of why the union lost a lot of support because studies show that they're used in, in over 90% of union election now by the employer. The reason why they're used so often is because they have to be effective. Um, they're very, I mean, when they're able to get out their message every day, that they, the message that they want to to the workers they want to, and the union has no equal say or equal right 
in being able to disseminate its message, you're just getting a clear misbalance of information. Um, and we see that play out, you know, in the political context when people are fed one, one message and without the ability to hear a, hear a response, there, a lot of them will begin to believe what they're hearing from the one party. They're not going to take it upon themselves to go personally go and, and double check that. But there's, there's also the issues of, it seems clear now is that Amazon defied the National Labor Relations Board order not to place their own ballot box around the workplace. It was a mail ballot election, so the, the way workers were voting over the last two months was by mail instead of the usual system of showing up to the workplace and casting a ballot during the workday. It is unlawful for either of the parties to interfere with the handling of any ballots. That's supposed to be something only the National Labor Relations Board is supposed to be the one through the mail, through the Postal Service, is supposed to be the ones collecting those, those ballots. And what Amazon is accused of right now is requesting or coercing the Postal Service to install their own personal mail ballot box for workers to drop their ballots in. And if Amazon was able to exercise any sort of control over that ballot box, I think that is more than enough to set aside an election and constitute an unfair labor practice. What it does show is that it likely limited a lot of workers that, oh, I need to send my ballot here. Otherwise, the employers, if they don't see me sending my ballot here, then they're going to think, oh, he must be a union supporter. They may be on the fence or they may be a soft union supporter that is not confident enough yet to be out and out in the workplace yet and because they think it'll subject themselves to retaliation. That's another one of like the displays of power that the employer can use to convince people that I'm the one calling the shots here. The overall coercive atmosphere at play here that the union is going to try and claim that uh, not only was coercive in itself, but also heightened the tensions of whatever other moves that were being made by the employer in this election. And they're going to ask the NLRB to set aside the election on those grounds. What would be the amount of trespassing by Amazon on the rights of workers in the election that would constitute the NLRB setting aside the election? What would that mean? Usually an unfair labor practice, unless it's determined to be de minimis, such as one supervisor telling one worker something that may have crossed the line, such as suggesting plant closure. That may be determined if it's in a 1,000-person voter list, then they might determine that that wasn't enough to overturn an election, assuming that the union didn't, win by, didn't lose by one vote. But if these are widespread interferences, such as interferences with ballot boxes, communications that were disseminated by text message that contained an unlawful threat or something similar, then the labor board will often say that they are unable to tell which workers were intimidated, so they'll just set aside the election because they're unable to tell. So it's, a, it's usually a pretty strict standard, and most unfair labor practices are enough to upset. But it can also be things that weren't necessarily unfair labor practice in and of themselves, but were statements of traditionally coercive natures when combined, say, a de minimis unfair labor practices, were enough to be worthy of setting aside the election. So it's, it's a pretty strict standard. You will often see if there's things that are can be credibly called unfair labor practices, then the election will often be set aside. And I don't want to be making a prediction necessarily, but I, I think there's a very good chance that the election result will be set aside. We don't have time to air the full interview on tonight's program. The second half of the interview with Brandon Magner talks in more detail about the importance of the PRO Act in improving the chances for workers trying to organize unions. There's a link to the full interview at laborexpress.org. Thank you, as always, to Mimi Roseberg and Ken Nash for sharing audio from their program, Building Bridges, Your Community and Labor Report, on WBAI in New York City. You can find out more info on Building Bridges at laborexpress.org. 
That's all the time we have for tonight's program. Labor Express is a nonprofit 51c3 member of IBEW Local 1220. The views expressed on Labor Express are those of its producers, not necessarily those of IBEW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, working people's voices broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. The song is our theme is called Workers' Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express. Hey, hey, hey.